In July 2011, Thomas Kale sat in conversation with Moises Kaufman at the SDC offices. In this exchange, Thomas and Moises traverse career beginnings, varying paths of directors, and the struggles involved with telling stories rooted in historical events on stage. This is Hal Prince, and you are listening to In Conversation With. This Masters of the Stage program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and is presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. Hello, good sir. This this is Tommy Kale. I'm here with Moises Kaufman, who has very kindly joined me. On a, on a fine afternoon this summer in New York City. It's good to see you, uh, Tommy. Uh, good to be seen. Good to be seen. Um, thank you for sitting down. I basically, uh, as I explained to you, selfishly wanted to have a chance to talk to people that inspire me or have done work that I admire and and basically just jump off and go from there. So my agenda is only that this is the best hour of your life. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see what we can do there. And, and you know, you're, I, I became aware of, of your work um, when I when I saw Laramie um, and was figuring out that this is what I uh, had an idea to do, and then saw the show and just sat there for about 15 minutes until the ushers told me to leave, and just you know held onto my playbill. Uh, I'm not someone who does these things, and sort of thought, all right, anything else that that happens um, with this gentleman, go see it, um, and have have done my best, you know, since then. Have have missed a few, so forgive me. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I also became aware of you because I was someone who realized that no one was going to hire me, so I should start a little theater company. Um, and I've heard you talk about that a little bit, but that to me was something that felt like a, a good way in, mm-hmm. um, just to talk, you know, obviously. You know about when you got here. Obviously, you're doing work before, but if you wouldn't mind, just uh, you know, talking a little. Well, bit. I had a very interesting upbringing because I was born in Caracas, Venezuela, mm-hmm. and uh, I was born in 1963. By the time I was in my teens, there was a very, very famous international theater festival in Caracas. So I grew up seeing the work of Peter Brook. Pina Bausch, Jerzy Grotowski, Tadeusz Kantor, like all of these like theater luminaries mm-hmm. who were really pushing the boundaries of what can happen on stage. And what's funny is that <laughs> the first time I saw a realistic play, I thought to myself, this is so avant-garde because everything I'd seen until that point was not, not realism or naturalism. Um, and so when I, I went to school, I was fortunate enough to join a theater company in Venezuela for four years where um, the director was somebody who had been greatly influenced by those guys. So that, that we did UNESCO and we did Moliere and we did Beckett and we did uh, original work. So, so my interest in the theater was always not in, I was never interested in realism. And uh, when I got to New York, I became even more concerned about theater and realism because I felt that, uh, you know, both realism and naturalism are forms that film and TV can do so much better. And uh, I also think that, you know, if we all assign the birth of naturalism to the first production of The Seagull that Stanislavski did, right, Um, there is a way in which that was, you know, over 100 years ago. Right. And while all of the other artistic movements have evolved from whatever was happening in, in, at that time, it feels like theater has really remained stuck in realism and naturalism. 
Um, so a lot of the work that when I came to New York, I joined the experimental theater wing. And this was in the late 80s? This was 87. 87, okay. Yeah. And it was a desire to continue my education. I, was, I had been working as an actor for those four years. Mm -hmm. And I had this very strange experience that I would be on stage and part of me would go outside and look at the whole event while I was performing. Uh, and then I started trying to direct from inside so that if a, if a scene was going a bit slow, I would start speaking faster to encourage my fellow actors to speak faster. Right. How did or, this go? Or if the blocking <laughs> was not, not going well, I would, I would move around to kind of recompose the scene. Yes, this really earned me the love of my peers, yeah, I, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, and so that's when I decided that I wanted to be a director and that I wanted to, to be a director and a writer and create my own work. Mm -hmm. And that's when I came to New York to study at the Experimental Theater Wing. Um, so I was there for three years. And I, when I left, I asked uh, Arthur Barto, who was the dean. He had seen all my work at school, and he was incredibly supportive. And I said, okay, so now I, I'm done. How do I work as a director? And he said, you're going to have to start your own theater company because nobody's going to hire you. Right. And... Um, Sage advice. Sage <laughs> advice. And at the time, I thought, well, you like my work. Why are you saying nobody will hire me? He said, well, because you're interested in posing some questions about the nature of the art form that, that really require a certain kind of exploration, and nobody's going to pay you to do that exploration. You're going to need to embark on that exploration on your own, and then when people see the work that that exploration yields, then they will hire you. Right. But that's not going to happen off the bat. Right. Best advice I ever got. Yeah. Did you assist at all, and was that part of your... I assisted a little bit. I assisted a, a woman by the name of Rina Yerushalmi in Israel, uh, and I, I started assisting Garland Wright on his production of The Devils, but one week into it, um, I had directed Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, and uh, a week into my assisting Garland, the play kind of broke through and became this... this uh, very successful uh, production, and so I couldn't I couldn't continue to assist him. So I had one week of assisting Garland right, right. which still was a high point of my artistic life. So well, the fact that those two things converge is pretty amazing. I mean, so uh, you know, I, I'm I also uh, assisted a, a little bit, but who uh, did you assist? I assisted. I, I worked. Um, I graduated from college and, and worked at the American Stage Company, this little equity theater in, in Teaneck, New Jersey, and. Um, I started out as the ASM, and so I was, you know, driving a 15-pass van to 96 in West End and 42nd and, and 9th very quickly and safely to deliver actors and designers, you know, uh, back home and then take them out. And while I was out there, I basically just started to assist the directors that were there. It was a small theater that, you know, <laughs> you were driving the van and sweeping the stage and also probably writing the program, and I had a walk-on in Gaslight, you know, I mean, all, whatever would, would needed to be done. So I, I, I assisted a, a bunch of directors out there. There was a director named Matthew Parent who ended up taking over um, uh, there and had come from the American Stage Festival. And I was uh, in, in that production of Gaslight um, after I, you know, took away the picture so everyone could go crazy and do all the things <laughs> they needed to do. I asked him one day during tech, do you mind if I just sit next to you and take notes? just my own notes, and then maybe I could ask you if those would be notes that would be relevant to you. And I dropped off the actors after a 10 out of 12, and it was about 11.45, and I called him, and I said, hey, Matthew, uh, you, we never talked about my notes. And I happened to be about four blocks from his house conveniently. And he said, "How? that's, that's true. Um, why don't we talk about them tomorrow? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm on 154th Street. <laughs> and I started, uh, and I went up and we started talking, and he was very receptive and realized 
okay, whoever next comes in, let me see if they need you to assist. And I did that until I left that theater, but I sort of started my little theater concurrently and didn't really assist after that. And that was part of, I think, why I you know, want to do this. You know, I, I wrote letters that didn't get returned. You know, mm-hmm. no one loved me. Um, and so I, I, I had to kind of find my own way. Um, and, it, and it's interesting when I look at people's paths, you know, there are people that were assistants and associates and did yes. that. And, and it's just not something I had experience with. But I think that the thing I've found is that, that each path is so very different. Some people do the route of, of assisting and then directing regionally and then coming to New York. Other people, uh, like us, start their own theater companies and so the path, you know, some people start as choreographers, uh, some people start as actors. So it, 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 you know, how we get here is so varied. There is no one way, and I, and I think that that when I was a young director, I remember freaking out a lot because I felt like, why doesn't somebody just tell me how to do it? You know, like in any other field, you would go to an office and you would start in a job, and then you would go to the next job, and you would go to the next job, and you would rise up the ladder. And uh, but in the arts, well, I don't know if in all the arts, certainly in directing, it's not like that. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of, I think, it's a lot of uh, initializing things yourself and, and, and kind of being motivated yourself to do things and to put things out there. And like you, when we started Tectonic Theatre Project in 1991, we were, um, you know, driving trucks from Brooklyn with a set, you know, so I would be directing and my boyfriend would go and get the stuff and bring it in and you know there were the two of us and at the time he was working in a community uh, community health service uh, helping people with AIDS so he had a job so we could get a, uh, a, a loan for ten thousand oh, dollars wow. and it was because of those that loan that we started the Tonic Theater Project because he had a job and we couldn't you know right, otherwise right. we couldn't get a loan yes um, much easier to get a loan back then than now <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I think that there are different paths, and I think that the only thing that is common is that kind of desire that we all have, and that kind of hunger that we all have. And you, then the path kind of kind of uh, becomes apparent as we go down. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And look, and there are those days when you know I have it all figured out, and then there are the days when you wake up and you sort of see how tenuous everything is. Mm-hmm. You know, these things that you can spend years working on that might just sort of it was it was that yeah. and and then they go away or you know yeah. how many plates you have to spin how many things you have to throw up against the wall you know that you, you talked about the the moment when you were assisting Garland Wright do you remember that you know that seems like a pretty important you know couple months for you that for you to be able to say okay this other thing has broken through I mean do you remember that moment distinctly when, when you realized that that's what you had to do you had to follow that and yes um, well first about Garland what was amazing about Garland is that I think I, I just uh, as I said I just uh, was his assistant for one week and I think I learned more in that week than I learned in in years um, because there was something about like this is I, I agree with you it's, who was it that said that the directing is like uh is like having sex. You hardly ever see how your friends do it. Right, Mike Nichols, and everybody tells you you're good. And everyone, oh <laughs> and really? Everybody tells you that you're good at it. Oh, that's very funny. Yes. I never heard the second part. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you never see how other people do it. So it's it's one of the great uh, faults in our system, right? Um, but so <laughs> I forgot what the question was. Oh no, you were just talking about Garland in that, that one week. Oh yeah, and 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 yeah. what was amazing about Garland was that that he taught me how to lead a room. And uh, he was incredibly collaborative with his actors, and he was, uh, 
he was a very kind leader and a very kind, uh, smart artist. So I think that, that, that I learned a lot from him in that one week. Um, what had happened is that we, we started Gross Indecency. It cost us, you know, we, we put on the play for nothing. And we did it at the Greenwich House. And it was uh, a theater that was a theater at night. And during the day, it was an activity center for other things. So every every night, we had to put up all the audience chairs. And then at the end of the show, we had to take them out. Um, and it was one of those. And it was it was March of, of uh, 1997. And we had been... Um, and I tried, we were trying to get press to come, critics to come. And it was a very, very busy month in theater, so nobody came. Okay. So we opened the play without a single review. And uh, it was a four-week run. And uh, the first week we were selling well, the second week we were doing very well, and the third week we were sold out. They could all word of mouth. And word, it was yeah. word of mouth. Right. And it was getting around, and everybody wanted to see it, and it became a thing. Um, the fourth week we got a call from the New York Times saying that they wanted to come see it. Um, well, that's not entirely true. Our, our press rep at that time, uh, Kevin McInerney, who kind of changed all of our lives, kept going after them, kept going after them, and finally said, yes, we'll come. Um, and then Ben Bradley came, and he saw it, and he gave it a very, very, very positive review. And from that day on, the whole, the whole world changed. And we, you know, we had lines around the, the, the block, and uh, you know, the way we were taking reservations at the time, we had a, an answering machine at home. And the answering <laughs> machine blew up. And... Uh, <laughs> And so we needed. We realized that we needed to kind of get somebody to take care of the tickets and get. So we we did all of this stuff, um, and uh, because I was running the theater company at the time, and there were only like f three of us at the time running the company, I couldn't assist all day and run this. Yeah. This, this was too much. Yeah. Uh, so. And then, and then so it went to the Manetta Lane. Yes. So what was the the period in between? So when that review came out towards the end of the run. Yes. Did you extend there? We did. Okay. We extended uh, as, as long as we could, actually. Uh, While planning this next move? Well, well, because of the review, the review was one of those reviews that really, you know, he actually said something like, you know, it would be a crime if producers don't move to somewhere else. Right. Like, basically, you know. Yeah. So we got It's better when they write like that. That's, yeah, that right? sounds better than some other reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, I've had those and I've had the other kind. Yes. I like those better. Yes. As it goes, yes. I'm going to take that one. I'm going to take that one. Uh, so there were enough producers, and then it became about we're in that great position where you could choose who you wanted to produce it. And, and, and that was the first time that you guys were co-producing that. I mean, that next move or had that became a commercial production right. of our play, and it was not only the first time that we've gotten that far. It was like you know, the Tectonic by that point was almost five years old, uh, and. I think that we were very well loved in the downtown art scene. Uh, and we were very well known in the downtown art scene. Our plays got very good reviews in the Village Voice, um, and uh, often we had more actors on stage than audience member in their seats. Yes, um, you know, and sometimes we did two character plays. <laughs> we still had more actors on stage than people in the seat. Uh, but uh, but but our, our our theory then was if there's one person there, you do the play. I, and and there were many times that we, were, we did the play for one person. I've, I've given that speech. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but what was interesting about that was that when this was a crossover for us, so we 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 stopped being kind of darlings of the avant-garde and became more, um, you know, our work was uh, all of a sudden available to the mainstream, mm -hmm. and that was a very exciting time because I don't know if you ever saw Gross Indecency, but Gross Indecency was not an easy play, and it wasn't realistic, and it was, uh, and it was. Uh, 
you know, a group of very, very, very good actors with a, with a really exciting script uh, and some really daring theatrical ideas, if I may say so myself, that really kind of, you know, uh, made an impact. Um, and how long did it run? What was the Two years. Wow. Back when there was a commercial off-Broadway. Well, right? Back when there was a commercial off-Broadway, which is such a pity that there no longer is. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, that... You know, that particular show was was that something that um, the ethos uh, and the mission of Tectonic, um, I'm sure you know, it starts as something and then it evolves. Um, so where where did that begin? And when when you said the kind of work that we want to do, is, you know, well, well, the the the, the 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 kind of idea for the company was this kind of allergy I have to realism and naturalism, and uh, and it's funny because the other day I was giving a lecture. And a, and, a, and a young student said to me, Mr. Kaufman, are you saying that we should never do Death of a Salesman again? And I said, number one, Death of a Salesman is not a realistic play. And number two, I think there's a great canon of realistic plays, and I've directed myself several of them. Uh, what I oppose is that it is such a prevalent form. Uh, I think it is a very worthy form, and a form that has had great ex examples of work done in it. But I, I think that, that there is a rigor in continuing to question what is the lexicon that we use on stage? What is the vocabulary of the stage? Uh, what are what are the theatrical languages and the theatrical vocabularies that allow us to keep furthering the art form? Right. Uh, and I think that that whenever I feel like I'm going into a rehearsal room just to crack a play, I am doing all of us a disservice. But if I'm going into a rehearsal room to crack a play and to keep thinking about, you know, this magnificent mythical art form that we're all involved in, then I feel like I'm doing my job. Right. Um, and I think that there is something about that that was the birth of the company. And tectonic means the art and science of structure, of form. And it, it is an, a formal approach. Uh, you know, there's always been this debate what comes first, form or function. And uh, to me, like the big breakthrough was when Beckett said form is function. And unbeknownst to him, he gave birth to uh, postmodernism, right? But I, I think that there is a way in which he was right. So that that this this dialogue between how we speak and what we say is pivotal to what we do, um, and so that's that's how Tectonic was created, and and uh, and so a lot of our early work was about staging people who had those kind of questions. So like we did a lot of Beckett, we did a lot of Brecht, we did a lot of uh, Sophie Treadwell, we did a lot of uh, late Tennessee Williams, we did a lot of people who themselves were questioning. You know what happens on stage that is not a kitchen sink, right? Um, and uh, we did that for a while, and then we did a play by Naomi Izuka called Marlowe's Eye. But then it became clear to me that if we were really being rigorous about this question of theatrical form, it wasn't enough to produce other people's work. It was important that we tackle the question of text and the that, creation of in the creation of text and the creation of text and right. and, and, and and you know working with a text that was, uh, you know as tectonic as we could make it. Um, and and then, and, and that was when I wrote my first play, which was Gross Indecency. So that was the first play I ever wrote. And uh, what was exciting about it was that that, that the form of it um, was a, a real deep questioning of history. And, how, and not only history, but how history is made, how history is recorded, and how history is retold. Right. Historiography, and, in a sense, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Who get, and who gets to tell whose stories, yes. you know? Uh, 
when you look at Oscar Wilde, all of the biographies of Oscar Wilde until the 1970s uh, talk about his homosexuality as a malady, you know, and, and in that context they talk about Lord Alfred Douglas as a virus, you know, mm. that infected Oscar Wilde. Uh, and, and all of the books written after that, of course, don't talk about it that way anymore. But the, the interesting thing is that Oscar never spoke about his homosexuality in those terms. So, you know, especially when you have somebody like Oscar, who is such a, a, a craftsman of words or a wordsmith, you know, the, the possibility of allowing him to, to tell his story in his own words mm-hmm. became important. But also what happened as soon as I started reading the, 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 the material and, and immersing myself was that there were so many different versions of what happened at the trial. So the lawyer would say, this is what happened, and Lord Alfred Douglas would say, that's not what happened, this is what happened, and Oscar Wilde would say. So there were like as many versions of what happened at, at, the, at court as there were people present, of course. Right, so it's about storytelling, it's about the conflict in storytelling and all those things crashing into each other. Right, and yeah. in, my, in my naivete, I thought, well, when I'm done with the research, I'll know who's telling the truth. Well, of course, you know, when I was done with the research, what I was left was with a different number of versions. So the question, the theatrical question became is how do you create a play that it is not about this is the story of Oscar Wilde, but about how do we reconstruct the story of Oscar Wilde, and how do you get the audience to participate in that reconstruction? And to me, I think that's what made the play what it was, because there's a million ways of telling that story. Um, but I think that, that the event of that play was a group of actors sitting around a table reading books, and when the books began contradicting each other, that's when the, the play became a play. Right. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, in, you know, there's something about your, you know, in listening to you, to you speak about form and function and knowing that with Laramie in particular, you know, you have these very strong feelings about realism and naturalism. And Laramie takes the words of, uh, of, of real people and yet uses that, uh, you know, and I think although it's, it's initially counterintuitive, it also makes perfect sense that if you use these words from these people, then you can construct around that something that doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, you know, rooted in in the world of naturalism at all. It's it's the most liberating thing, right? I mean, because that that's you know, th- there's something really beautiful about the way those two things crash into each other. So how did it? How did the the process of um, of inspiration? You know, I, I I kind of understand how you guys went about doing it, but to go to that next thing and say, here we took these texts that were written as truth. This is my truth. This is my truth. And in a way, when you do, uh, when you're interviewing people, when you're getting their stories, they're doing the same kinds of things, right? This is my story. This is this is how I saw it. Mm-hmm. So how did you know? How did that uh, inspiration come from? from well, I think that the, the thing that was interesting about about Laramie was that um, that it, it seemed like a very organic next step, which was Matthew Shepard was murdered, and in the days after the murder. Uh, I was I was shocked by the murder, of course, but I was even more shocked by the kind of media attention that it got. You know, it became very quickly a watershed historical moment in our culture. And you know, there's over a thousand hate crimes every year, but for some reason, this one resonated. This one was the one that we, as a culture, said, "Look at what's happening." And so my question was, why? Why this one? And the only way I knew how to answer that question was by going to Laramie, taking the theater company, and having people ask questions. I also thought that it was a very interesting model of one community of artists going to another community to try and understand it. That's usually worked on by anthropologists, not by theater artists. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that 
actors have this kind of empathetic intelligence that, that uh, allows them to know things about other people in a way that, that uh, civilians don't or that historians don't. So I wanted us to see the wor- the, 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 their words through that process. Also, having just done Gross Indecency, which was based on um, the words of people 100 years ago, what I was struck by that was how uh, how much the whole civilization that the Victorians lived in was captured in their words. In the, when they spoke, when they answered the questions of the trial, they revealed not only their feelings about Oscar Wilde or their feelings about homosexuality, but they revealed their feelings about religion and about politics and about education and about violence and about male-male relationships. So, so that, that every text contains within itself the kind of philosophy of the community or the society in which it's spoken. And I thought if we went to Laramie, we might be able to gather a document that would be not only, you know, a record of what happened to the people of Laramie after Matthew Shepard was murdered, but that would tell us something about who we are as a society. And by we, I mean Laramie, I mean Wyoming, I mean I mean America. And so that's what inspired us to go, you know. And when we went, we went on the first trip, and we really didn't even know if a play would come of it. And I remember keep saying to the company, you know, we're going to go, we're going to spend a week there, we're going to ask these questions, and we're going to come back, and we're going to see what we find, and there may or may not be a play there. But this way of working seems like a really kind of exciting next step from our exploration that we just started with Gross Indecency. Uh, and since then, that has led many people to confuse our company for a documentary theater company, which it's not, you know. Uh, but there were those pieces that relied on that kind of research. Oh, that there's a very sweet aside. When when Matthew Shepard was murdered, it was the first time in the company's six-year history that we ever had money in the bank. And the only reason why we had money in the bank was because Gross Indecency had been so successful mm-hmm. that we finally had money in the bank. So when Matthew Shepard was killed, and I said, okay, let's take 10 people of the company and fly to Laramie and stay there for a week and pay for hotels and f- pay for the trip, we could afford it because we had money in the bank. And I find it so moving that it was Oscar Wilde who paid right. for us to go write the play about Matthew Shepard. Oh, yeah, you know? That's beautiful. Yeah. I think that there's something re- very moving about that. But then the question became, how do you use theater to tell this story? And what became exciting was that, again, with this this idea of each person had, as you say, their own version of the story and their own version of who Matthew Shepard was and their own version of what, what happened to him and their own version about why it happened. And so the question became, who do you give prevalence and who do you not give prevalence? And to me, what was important was that whenever you see you know, a, a film that is a documentary, the, the contract that the film makes with the audience is these are the facts. Right? right, we're showing you subjectivity the doesn't even enter into it, of course. Right, <laughs> right. Which, of course, we now know that every time you slice a film and you and you cut it and paste it with with another film, that those are no longer the facts. Those are your narrative, your construction, right. your, your version of the yeah. story. Right, and so for us, it was very, very important that the company be present in the telling because it was us. It was a group of New York theater artists, some of whom were gay, some of whom were straight some of which were religious, some of which were atheists, some of which were, you know, Latinos, some of which were white, some of which were... All of us, with all of our, our, our judgments and our preconceived notions and our, our, our prejudices, going to try and capture and articulate a story of other people. So during the whole time, we had this sense of responsibility. And at the same time, as soon as we dealt with that question, we realized that we had cracked the form of the play which was going to be a group of actors saying, we went, we saw, 
We brought it back. This is what we're doing. They, they needed. They were on stage. They were characters in this. In they the were characters, story, yes. and you know, by name, we named it by name. Yeah. And the journal entries were part of who you know, so that you got to meet the company of people who was doing the play, and that in that way, we were very clearly saying, no, this is not the story of Laramie. This is what we witnessed of Laramie. Yeah. And that form of a group of actors owning that event, owning that task, I think is one of the things that elevates the play from from uh, just a series of interviews to a to a a play that is about how we understand one another. Right. Which is funny enough exactly what was trying to happen in Laramie. Yeah. And and in and also dramatizing the effort and the struggle yes. of trying to, to understand. How 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 do you um, interact with the perception of your company as as such? You know the the idea, you know, of being defined by our work, um, and as we go forward, I mean, is that something that's I find myself there. I'm always trying to explain what we are, and the company is now almost 20 years old, and I'm still trying to explain what we are. Um, in a way, it's a good problem to have because that means that the work has had its 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 effect. Uh, but it's hard because it's such an artistic pursuit. You know, you're not, you know, like our board is always telling us, well, can you put it in one sentence? Well, we're a company that explores theatrical language and theatrical forms. Right. You know, if you're, if you're not in the theater, <laughs> right. that's hard, a hard thing to understand. And that is one of the reasons why we have such a hard time fundraising, because people are much more eager to give money to companies that, that uh, behind which process they can get behind. So if you're the signature theater and you do one playwright per season, ah, that's a good idea. I understand immediately what that is. If you're the roundabout and you do revivals with stars, oh, I know what that is. That's what I want you know, but if you're a tectonic theater project and you're trying to do a, a rigorous experimentation into what is, you know, what are the theatrical vocabularies that are resonating right now and how to keep deeply and richly exploring that. Uh, it also sounds frivolous, doesn't it? It, it, it doesn't <laughs> sound frivolous. I, I, I certainly know um, this, the the challenge of of trying to condense, you know, in a matter of words. I mean, now I guess Twitter blows all this up, right? Because if you can't do it in 140 characters, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea of going to someone and saying, you know, this is the kind of work we do, and if it can't be codified or boiled down, uh, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound frivolous. I, I think it's just, it, in a way, it's so specific, but it continues to evolve because the work that you were doing in '91 um, is is a relative of this. But but it but the DNA has been altered through these years. Yes, and I, and, and I you know you've been there for you know in the birth and the inception and the growth and, and the, the adolescence of the company. So of that core group, it started with was there three? Was it two when you started? Was it two? Two, and you know and how you know what that that uh, arc has been, you know sort of you know where do you stand now? I mean where is the the company now is well. I think the company now is, of vital, course, vital. much bigger. Yes. And uh, and we define ourselves as a community of artists who are interested in the same thing. <laughs> and and the reason why we do that is because, for example, Michael Emerson, who was in gross indecency, right? Uh, he didn't want to be in the Laramie Project because he was too shy to interview anybody. Um, and then he got lost. <laughs> the television show, the not television metaphorically. So lost. We just met. Uh, although some people would would, would say <laughs> that a lot. No, I'm just kidding. So you know, so he will come back and do another play with us. But you know, so each one of us have our own lives. It's not. It's not. 
it's oftentimes confused by a repertory theater company. It's not a repertory theater company. It's it's a community of artists who are interested in the in the same research. And and it's important for the growth of that company for people to go out in the world and then absolutely. come back. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you're someone I know that you you're a consumer. Yeah. You know you. You go see Pixar. You go see things. You know, you yeah. you have all that in, in your vocabulary, and and there is something. You know, I, my company was much smaller, existed for a, a very short amount of time, but I, I basically what was it called? It was called Backhouse Productions, and it was this little theater company in the basement of the Drama Bookshop on 40th. Street. I remember this. Yes, um, yes, yes. And you know, we painted the walls black and we said it's a black box. You know? <laughs> and so that, that seemed like a theater to us. You know, <laughs> it but, is, and, and it's and it is, and it and it continues, and and basically. Even though our company is not in existence, we just wanted a place to go, yeah. and I wanted to provide a place to have my friends come. And whether it was uh, writing a song on the piano downstairs, or us coming together and reading something that someone had written, or setting up the chairs for someone else's event, that felt important. And I think that it's the the lack of rootedness and uh, you know, and just the the sheer volume of New York. It, it made us feel good to have a bunker. To be able to literally go under the earth and be down there, and while we were there, where cell phones didn't work, and you might have had a clock, you know, it's like Vegas for theater. Um, I was about to say, it sounds like Vegas. <laughs> and they pumped in oxygen. I was eating all these sandwiches, <laughs> and we lost all of our money. So you know what? It actually was like Vegas. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was really fundamentally about having a place to go yeah. and providing that, um, yeah. and and so it served that purpose. Well, you know, when I first graduated from NYU, I'm, I, I never graduated from NYU. When I first left NYU, uh, you matriculated. I, I was there, I was there for three years, and then I felt like okay, I got it, and then I moved on. But I never I never got a degree. Uh, but when I left NYU, I was very worried about that thing you just said, which is that it's very easy to feel very alone in this city. And it's very easy, especially as an artist, to become very quickly very embarrassed about either calling yourself an artist, especially if you're in the theater, calling yourself an actor, calling yourself a director. And one of the things that really helped me, and I think this is something that, that I always tell my students that I think it's a, it's a very important thing, is that as quickly as you can, you have to find yourself a community. Because it is in that community that you are a director. It is in that community that you are an actor. For me, that was New York Theater Workshop. They have this thing, which they still have, called The Usual Suspects. And being a part of The Usual Suspects saved my life. Because it was, it was a place where you could go and do exactly what you were talking about. You know, have conversations with other writers, with other directors, with other actors who were uh, in the same boat you were. And were talking about the work. You know, in Paris, in the, at the turn of the last century, of the two centuries ago, you know, it was the cafes, you know, where Toulouse-Lautrec would meet, you know, Renoir would meet the others, and they would all talk, about, sit down and talk. And I think that, that, that one of the reasons for us having our theater company and creating our theater company was exactly what you're saying, is creating a community like-minded, of like-minded individuals where you can continue to ask the questions that you want to ask about the theater, right? You know, and it's interesting in, in, in hearing you say that the, the idea that you know to define yourself, and there's this, you know, that that embarrassment or that um, that shame when someone you know they gets attached to saying I'm a writer, I'm an actor, I'm a director. What you know, we can't just come out and say it. Yet you need to sort of take ownership of it in some way because of the inherent collaborative nature of what we do. It's also hard to exist on your own, mm -hmm. literally. I mean, to do what 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 I try to do, 
I need people in the room. Right? Yes. I need someone to give me material. I need someone to, yeah. um, you know, to, to be up there trying to interpret it. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, that idea that you have to kind of reinvent yourself because I, I, if I'm not going to write a script and pass it over and say this is who I am, you know, when you're a director, people say, "Great, where's the work?" Right? You know, like, so w where's the thing? Um, oh, you missed it, but it was excellent. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so much of that. You know, I. I the idea of having other people to define yourself with and against, um, you know, in the best sense, you know, we're, okay, if you do that on this one, then I'm going to do this, you know, and so we create those roles in, in that community. Um, that's exactly right. You know, yeah, that's, yeah, it's, I mean, look, it's, uh, we'll probably always be looking for it, um, and, and I think there's also a reason why shows about communities are so embraced by audiences. You know, this is not something that I think is particular to the artist. I think there's a reason that shows about very specific communities find a way to, to transcend and, and speak to audiences. Like, for example? Fiddler on the Roof, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Rent, um, uh, Avenue Q. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, shows about a community. What do you do when you get out of college? You don't know what to do. Yeah. What do you do when you are living in a, on a shtetl and the world is changing? What yeah. does this group do? And so those... You know those ideas of communities struggling. Um, mm. You know we're certainly big. Uh, you know Fiddler was such a big influence on In the Heights in that way. You know a show about a community that was made up of not just you know uh, Puerto Ricans, but it was about Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. The sort of pan Latin idea. And what do you do when that world changes? Where do you go? And 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 I, and I guess this sort of you know something that, uh, that you also sort of sparked in me um, when we were we were just talking about you know your your curiosity is one that is also sociological and and one that is about you know the putting things in context uh, you know a city and a state a state and a country and, and can you use that to say something you know the idea that that you came here uh, you know as as what would be checked as the other right you know like you you know here you are and and you're in a world and you're in Venezuela and you are living this life and then to to come to America and to have that. Where, where, do you know what it was that sort of sparked this, this curiosity, the, the sociological interest that you have? The well, I think, um, well, there, there are two answers to that. Number one is, you know, that thing that, that, uh, that I think it was Brecht who said it, that every work of art carries within itself, you know, everything about the society in which it was made. Um, and to me... Uh, which is not dissimilar from what I said before about yeah. you know the text the of the people yeah. of Laramie, right, and the and the transcripts of the trial. Uh, but I think that there is a that there is a you know I think that my my great interest is more humanistic than sociological or political. Uh, but above all those things, it's artistic because I think that that is the the perhaps the most enlightened way of looking at our lives. But but yes, you're right. I. I even in Venezuela, you know, I, I was born into a very orthodox Jewish community that was in the heart of a very uh, Catholic country, and uh, the country was also very machista. Uh, and by the time I was 11, 9, between 9 and 11, I realized that I was gay. So here I was, a gay man, or a gay boy, inside an orthodox Jewish community, inside a Catholic and machista country. So I was very, very degrees removed from the norm. Um, so I, I've had experiences, and then I came to New York and I became a gay Latino Jew, 
leaving the Upper West Side. Check, check, check. Check, 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 check. <laughs> right? Uh, we, some people have joked that that's the only place where someone like me would actually belong. You know? <laughs> Just uh, looking for community. Yeah, yeah. But what, what was interesting was that he taught me a lot about not only being the other and being an outsider, but about how communities define themselves, right? So that if you're in the Orthodox Jewish community within a Catholic country, how much of your own sense of self comes by saying what you are not, uh, right? Yes. Uh, and how uh, being a Venezuelan in New York is defined by what you are not or what you are, you know. So, so I've had a lot of experiences in, in both... Um, how do you define your own identity as an individual and how do you define your identity as a community or as a nation or as a society and and what what's what that gave me was kind of a bird's eye view on what constitutes identity and what constitutes the pillars of any kind of philosophy or ideology and uh and 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 perhaps more than that to realize that all of that was relative and that uh, all of that was were, were, were choices that we made about the narrative of who we are. And basically what we always do is we're constructing narratives that tell us who we are. So if you were a Jew in Venezuela, you have one narrative. If you are uh, a gay man inside the Jewish community, you have another narrative. And you begin to... And it was very clear to me the the kind of belief systems that led to the... Uh, to the to the kind of development of each one of these identities and to me I think you know watching people construct those identities was a great education in theater because that's what we ask actors to do all the time right yeah. to construct a set, a set of parameters and beliefs that their characters have and then throw them in a pot and have them interact with those system of beliefs so it was it was very helpful and very helpful to 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 always uh be removed from the norm and watch the norm and watch how people constructed their sense of self, their sense of identity, the sense of uh, nationality, the sense of community, all of those things, um, I think was a very good education. Did, did, did you grow up with brothers and sisters? Yes. Yeah. Um, so how much of your family stayed in Venezuela? Um, Until very recently, all of them. Yeah. I just okay. came along here to New York. You know, and often... You know, for the first part of my life, I always the, the, the story was I came to New York because I wanted to do theater. Now, when I look back, you know, yes, I came to New York because I wanted to do theater, but I came to New York because I wanted to survive. And as a gay man in 1987 in Venezuela, there was I would never have survived. All of my peers who went to school with me who stayed are married and have children. All of them who are gay are married and have children. Right. So... Um, you know, th that wasn't the life I wanted. So, you know, it's always interesting. One thinks one does things for one reason, and then one realizes that it's more complicated than Was that. there difficulty in con convincing your, your parents that you wanted to come? Was oh, yes, great, great yeah. difficulty. Well, actually, my dad, my mom was okay, but it was... My father said to me once, uh, <laughs> why do you want to be in the theater? The theater is full of prostitutes and homosexuals. And I remember thinking, don't let him see how much that idea excites you. <laughs> you know, uh, and you moved your ticket up. <laughs> and I moved my ticket up. But God bless him, years later, I, I reminded him of that story. And At gross indecency. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and he said, and, he, and my dad was uh, 
big enough to say, yes, I know, as soon as those words were out, were out of my mouth, I realized I had, if you needed a further push, I had just given it to you. Right. So you come from a family of self-reflexiveness and ability to step outside. <laughs> yes. um, when your parent, you grew up in the Orthodox community, so is the, you know, how much decision does one have to to leave or to participate or to not participate? Is that... Was that also at, this, at, the, at the center of, of any of this, you know, if you said you were 9 or 10 and you were becoming aware of, of your sexuality and you're in a family where there's other brothers or sisters who are also in this world, um, how, do, how do you choose to not participate or, or to participate and to live within that? I mean, what is, that, is it just about the survival instinct? It was. It was entirely about the survival instinct. And I really didn't have, you know, at that age, you don't have much of a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was about finding ways to uh, survive yeah. and to continue to, to not let your your uh, yourself be destroyed by the beliefs of other people. Right, right. You know, th- a lot of what you were saying too, um, just this this idea of identity and um, how we create a, a context for it. You know, a lot of at the core, I think, of some of the fabric of I'm My Own Wife. Mm-hmm. You know, just in, in the... That was a very good transition. Yeah. You see that? I have no notes in front of me. I just want to let that be known. No notes. So either he's Woo. ahead of me or I am one step behind him. Um, and so, the, the obviously, this seemed like it was the synthesis of a lot of the things that you had been either consciously or unconsciously exploring. Yes. Um, and this is something that how, how did how did this project come about? I mean, so coming from where you you know you were coming post Laramie and all that other stuff. This is two thousand early two thousands two thousand four. It was in town, right? Yeah. So, so it was two thousand two two thousand three. Right. No, no. I first started working on it in two thousand one. Oh, okay. And uh, it came about because I was very very good friends with Doug Wright. I still am, and uh, he um, he had interviewed Charlotta. On Malsdorf, and um, had all of these interviews and didn't know what to do with them. Um, and uh, he had tried to write a play, uh, and then discovered that that Charlotta was in fact collaborating with the Stasi, and kind of freaked out and couldn't continue because he didn't want to condemn this person he loved so much. So the people at Sundance said, "Come up and work on this play that you have." So Doug Wright was too embarrassed to ask for a full company of actors, so he said, "Well, just give me one actor." And he asked Jefferson Mace to go up, and so it was me and Jefferson Mace. So good ideas from the beginning. (laughs) It was. It was all. It was all. uh, You know. But what was interesting was that we, um, you know, I I started working with Doug on this idea that uh, introduce me, Charlotte, introduce Charlotte to me, and we've developed several techniques, a tectonic theater project to work, technical moment work. Uh, and it's about how to learn to create performance as opposed to writing text. Um, and so I, we, we, I started with a series of exercises, and one of them was, um, Doug has written extensively about this, but one of them was that everybody had to come in and present to the rest of the group something about Charlotta, but it, it had to be done theatrically. I didn't want reading text, and I didn't want, I wanted. So um, so I, I went home, and I came back, and I was I was very interested in what does a man look like with hairy chest and a black dress. So, you know, I just did a moment with that about, you know, getting up there and getting to my underwear and then coming back up and and, uh, and putting a dress on and looking at myself in a mirror with a dress. So that was one moment. 
the next moment was Jefferson Mays uh, went home and uh, and because Charlotte ran a museum of uh, furniture he went home and out of cardboard made some furniture and then took a shoe box and put all of the pieces inside the shoe box and then he came the next day and he opened the box and he gave us a tour of the museum with the with the little pieces and Doug Wright uh, brought in a gay guy to Berlin because Charlotte had left East Berlin to go to West Berlin and discovered all the gay bars because in East Berlin the homosexuality was illegal so you couldn't have a gay bar so basically he read all the gay bars that were in West Berlin at that time all those three moments ended up in the final production um, and so what we did during those three weeks was I really tried to ask Doug to find theatrical ways in which to show us who Charlotte von Mauser was and uh, when I felt that we had enough of that then I said okay now tell me about what you found out about the Stasi and that's when he started bringing that. He felt safe enough now that he was able to bring up the... the, the to introduce this other idea. Yeah, the contradiction and the, and the difficulties. And the last part of, the, of, this, of, the, of Act One was, oh my God, she's an informant. And that was how it happened. You know, I always believe that, the, 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 that if you look at a play from an archaeological perspective, you, you can always find in it the, the, the way in which it was made. You know, and in, in I'm My Own Wife, I mean, in Tectonic, we, we, we kind of forced that on the play, right. you know. But, uh, but in I'm My Own Wife, we weren't trying to force it on the play, but you can see in the architecture of the play, it's the architecture of a writer coming to terms with this character. First, he shows all the heroic part of Charlotte, and at the end of Act 1, he says, oops, there's something else, and then Act 2 becomes about delving into the darker parts. Um, so that was a little bit of how we worked on it. Yeah, it, it's um, you know, it, it uh, get ready for another segue. Um, you know that this idea of collaboration in that way, and because you have uh, you've written, um, you've directed things you've written, you've directed things other people have written, and you know the, the difference of those things is less interesting to me than who is the person when you are directing your own work that's there with you. You know, because a lot of times. Uh, we're trying to avoid, you know, a hat on a hat, right? It's like sometimes the writer can help us out and they'll say it, and sometimes there's something that we can do visually or non-verbally uh, or just in behavior that can create that. So, you know, whether it was gross indecency or with 33 variations, you know, who, in the way that you and Doug obviously had, well, could be out there together, Yes. Uh, who do you find to do that with you in, in these other instances? Well, I think that uh, usually... I have a good dramaturg when I'm working on a play of my own. In 33 Variations, it was Mark Bly. Okay. Who of course, he's a genius. He's one of the great men of American theater. But I think that, that you raise a really important question. For, some, for somebody who's a writer-director, who is creating the work on stage? Is it the writer or is it the director? And to me, that question is a fascinating question. It's a question where, you know... To me, I think it's both. I mean, I always think about, you know, in the 70s, there was this whole movement against the dictatorship of the text. Uh, and it's true, because you start any performance, the moment you speak a word, the text has a, a habit of taking over the performance. Um, so in the 70s and in the early 80s, there was a lot of, a great movement, in the, especially in the downtown art scene, about the revolution against the dictatorship of the text, right? So they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but there was a sense of, no, we're going to write performance that exists without text. And to me, I think that we're in, in a moment that is post that, which is that can we continue to find out how the theater speaks 
and continue to have text be one of the ways in which it speaks. So that there's a you know a thesis and thesis and, and synthesis. And now I think that the, this moment of coming together is exciting. But I rely as heavily on my directorial skills to write performance as I do on my writing skills to write text. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why a lot of the work we do at Tectonic is always starts in the rehearsal room. And then I go away and I write something. But, but it is about how do you continue to tell stories theatrically? And that is, to me, an exciting question. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems that inherent in, in the work that, that you do is the addressing head-on of the question, does this belong in the theater? And the answer is yes. I mean, right. you know, whatever one thinks about the work, you yes. know, unequivocally you can say, this is the way to tell this story. This yes. is the, the mode of telling the story and the place where it needs to happen. Yes, and I would even take that a step further. That, that I think that the question that we're asking is not only does this belong in the theater, but how does how is theater uniquely qualified to articulate the the deepest uh, ideas within the story. And that's a really exciting question because that leads you to find theatrical solutions. Uh, you know, I said, I said before that there is something that feels superficial about talking about form. It feels like, uh, and to me, uh, I have found it to be some of the, the deepest, richest, and most profound discoveries that I've done in theatrical uh, terms and in theatrical uh, Ideas when I am dealing with how does theater articulate uh, deep, rich, and interesting ideas. Well, you know, it, it, it reminds me of two things. One is um, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, these glorious, um, you know, moments of really elevated fight choreography that existed. I remember reading something about how do you write what, what's in the screenplay. And parentheses, they fight. <laughs> yes. And then you find Wu Peng or whomever it is to articulate that. Or, yeah. or you know, when they were, they were struggling with the opening of, of West Side Story and, you know, writing this new, you know, this, this music and trying to find this lyric. And Jerome Robbins says, oh, no, I'm going to dance that. And so, you know, that idea of collaboration, too, yes. uh, of being able to look to those around you um, to, to problem solve, to, to, to inspire, to... And to, to deal with a lot of that is... Well, and I think you, you just gave two very, very clear examples of what I'm trying to articulate, which is, you know, there is theatrical narratives, a theatrical spectacle that profoundly articulate ideas and profoundly articulate narratives and profoundly articulate stories uh, in a way that I get very excited about. You know, that, yeah, the, the clicking of the fingers in West Side Story is such a theatrical event that you'll never forget. Uh, the defied choreography, you know, there was a much narrative about character and about story that was going on in those fight choreographies as there was in any scene. So to me, it is, it is that, and it is, but it is even taking it a step further, which is, you know, how can you allow every element of the stage to participate in the conversation? How can you allow sets and costumes and music and light and each one of those elements to become an active part of the discourse so that it's not only that we're dressing up a product a text you know but that it is that the narrative is constructed organically from 
the stage, that we really are using theatrical vocabularies to talk about the narrative. And one of the greatest reasons why that occurs is because of the form in which we make theater in our country here. It's, we, 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 you know, the form is that a writer goes into a room, right, and she spends 20 years in that room. We all have a very clear image of that room with cobwebs and vodka bottles, <laughs> and empty vodka bottles. And she comes out with the play, and she hands it to the director who goes into another room for three weeks and one week of tech, and there's a play. So that model only allows for us dressing up pre-existing texts, as opposed to having a profound and, 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 and interesting exploration of how theater tells stories. You know, the, the form that is the prevalent form in American theater is one that depends, for a variety of reasons, on us starting from a script. Um, and I think that's why Tectonic Theater Project is a laboratory. And that's why we start with either an idea or a theatrical image or a, you know, something that is organic to the theater, and we develop it from there. Um, you know, when I started Tectonic Theater Project, one of the things that I knew I did not want was I did not want to create a theater that had a season, and I didn't want to have a theater that had a, a building, and I didn't want to have a theater that had a subscription base. You know, what we call the three S's, subscription space, and uh, we didn't want to have a space, we didn't have a subscription audience, and we didn't want to have a season. Subscription space and I was season. Say, support, I was with you, but I, I couldn't. Those are the three things we don't want, because number one, we don't want to have to do four plays a year. Number two, we don't want to have a subscription audience that is expecting us to do four plays a year. Number one, and number three, we don't want to be landlord. We want to be a laboratory that if it takes us a year to make a play, then it takes us a year to make a play. And then, you know, we've been blessed that perhaps that play is Laramie Project or Gross Indecency or 33 Variations or I'm My Own Wife or, you know, but that, that, that you know, it's, it's a very costly proposition and it is very, uh, an uncapitalistic proposition. And it is a proposition that's not easy to do. But if you're thinking about what benefits the art form, it is a proposition that, that remarkably benefits the art form. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's it's well said, and I think it also gives a sense that the audience comes in and sees the tree, you're interested in the roots, right? right. I mean, you want to, and each of them has to be a different way there. Well, I think I'm interested in the audience seeing the roots. And <laughs> and having transparency, and the audience seeing the roots. Um, well, with that, uh, you know, trying to uh, understand and identify organic moments, I will I will uh, free you to go on with the rest Thank of your Thank you, Tommy. Day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. This Masters of the Stage program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.